Mountain. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. I'm really glad you're here. It's going to be an important. I just feel like what we're going to do in the next little while is going to be really important, and uh, I'm glad you're here for it. I think God's going to show up. If we'll just open our, our hearts and minds just a little bit, I think he'll have room to get in and really speak to us today. I'm glad you're here. So, uh, hey, how about, the, how about the big game last week? Um, the, I'm talking about the Super Bowl. Uh, the Broncos got absolutely stomped by the Seattle Seahawks. I knew that was going to happen. I, I saw that coming a mile away. Uh, that fumble on the opening, if you don't know about it, there's a big fumble on the opening play, which is now going to go down in history as the big flap about the snap mishap and the big app. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah. Did you feel a little bit bad for the Broncos, though? They were doing so well, and you feel almost bad for Peyton. You know, the last time that many people were upset with a Bronco, O.J. Simpson was in it. Get it? Some of you old-timers are like, <laughs> kids are like, I don't get it. What's that? <laughs> yeah, the joke is mine. The picture is not. But, but you think it's safe to say, okay, so we had a Super Bowl. The Broncos were doing great. Do you think it's safe to say things did not exactly go how they had hoped? I think so. I think it's safe to say. One day they're on top of the world. You know, they're setting records. They're media darlings. Uh, the promised land is right around the corner. You know, the future is bright. And then, bam, they, they, a funny thing happens on the way to their future. And it all falls apart. And they get demolished in this game. Their dreams are crushed. And they're chased out of town in humiliation, right? So we're, we're, uh, we're working our way through the whole Bible. And we're using this book, the story, to do it. And we come to chapter 18 this week. And, you know, the situation that God's people are in is very much like the situation that the Broncos are in today, uh, in that the children of God were chosen by God to be his vessel to kind of carry the dream forward, right? And they were on top of the world. They had a lot of things going for them. They were winning. They were Super Bowl champs, right? They had their, they had their temple. They had their kings. They had uh, lots of land. They had peace and they had prosperity. But then it, over time, as we've seen in recent weeks, through their repeated stubborn disobedience, and despite warnings from multiple prophets and messengers from God, the people keep stubbornly disobeying God, and it all starts to fall apart. And it crumbles before their eyes and crashes. The northern kingdom, you remember, destroyed by the invading Assyrians as God removes his protective hand. The southern kingdom of Judah, same thing happens at the hands of the Babylonians. What the Seahawks did to the Broncos, the Babylonians did to the southern kingdom of Judah. They came in, they ransacked the place, humiliated and carried everybody off. Their, their, their form of, uh, everybody say Babylon. Babylon. That was the world power in those days. And their form of conquering uh, and was to go in and desolate an area, raise it to the ground in certain ways, leave the poorest of the poor to live there among the rubble, but then cart off back to Babylon, in this case 500 miles away, the best and the brightest, and reinculturate them as completely as possible, brainwash them essentially so they'd become productive citizens and contribute to the Babylonian Empire. And this is what happens to the nation of Israel away from the temple, away from their religion, away from their family, and everything is turned upside down and dragged off to this unfamiliar place. And they, they lost it all. Their peace and their prosperity, their family, everything they loved. They're in exile, is the word we use, exile. And it was incredibly hard, very traumatic. 
And when you're in exile, after all of that upheaval and your story not going how you'd wanted it to go, your mind sometimes starts to go south a little bit. You start to get bitter or you start to get fearful. You start to wonder if it's even worth going on. You start to ask questions about how you're going to get along, and you start to ask questions about where is God when you're in exile, don't you? We all know, every one of us knows what it's like to live in exile sometimes, don't we? Exile is when, when you didn't imagine you'd be here, but there you are. Exile is when your story takes a, a bad turn. Maybe it was an abrupt turn, or maybe it was something that's been building over time, but nonetheless, here it is. It's a chapter that isn't playing out the way you really thought it would in your life. Something that's upsetting. Maybe something was taken from you. Someone disappears, and your whole world feels upside down. Maybe you're displaced or forgotten or feeling on the outs. That's a little bit like exile. Everybody spends some time in exile eventually. You know, a, a child, when mom and dad split up, a child suddenly finds herself with two bedrooms, two dressers, two neighbors, sets of neighbors, two schedules, two sets of rules, and, 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 and it's confusing, and it can be hard, and, and the child, without being able to say it out loud, just wishes everything to kind of go back together again, but it, you can't, you're stuck there in exile. Or maybe... Sometimes when you reach a certain age in life, some women start noticing, you know, I don't turn heads like I used to and I begin to feel differently about myself. Or sometimes at a certain age you realize there are certain things that are happening and people stop paying attention to you at work like they once did. You're not part of conversations and assignments like you used to be and you find yourself more on the outs, in the dark, wondering what the future holds. And it's a kind of exile. Or when a friendship dies despite your best efforts to patch it up, or a feud runs down the middle of a family and you feel like you're forced to take sides and you just wish you could go back to the way it used to be, but you can't. You're kind of in exile. Or if you have to move away from home or change schools or you get moved in a different place with your job, there's a displacing there, there's a disorientation, there's a sense of your life being changed in a way that you didn't necessarily ask for and you don't like it. And everyone around you knows what exile is like. The person next to you, that guy, he, he may look fine. He may even smile at you this weekend. But, you know, maybe it took everything he could do to even put his clothes on and get here today because he used to come with her, but she's not here anymore. And so now it's just hard to get out of bed. And when you live in that strange, in-between, dark place called exile, whether it's you're feeling alone or upended or a financial crisis or a sense of illness, everybody's in exile at some time or other. You ask, how did I get here, and where is God, and how am I going to make it? And all of us know what it's like to live in exile if you're a Christian, because we live in a land that, and where Christianity is falling out of favor more and more every day, it seems. We're the ones with this small minority religion, it seems, in a land that has other values. We know. What do you do? Where's God? How do you live? How do you make it? You know, you've heard me talk about the cabin that I love so much up northern Minnesota. One of my memories from when I was a kid, probably eight or nine years old, is my Uncle Calvin Miller comes up to me uh, in the evening, like seven or eight, and he says, you know, we're getting together over at our house, uh, at our cabin, uh, a little bit later, 
uh, for some pie and ice cream. You're welcome to come over. I think your parents are already over there, and you know your brothers and sisters. Well, I was all excited about that. A lot of memories and a lot of fond memories. I wouldn't want to miss going to my Uncle Calvin's for, for, uh, for, for something like that. He, and, he, and he looks at me, and he knows it's getting dark. He knows it's getting late. And he says, I, I, the road will be a little dark, but you'll make it. Winks at me and walks away. So it's about a quarter mile down this, uh, from where I was, down this country dirt road up there in northern Minnesota. And a little bit later, it's, it's pitch dark, and I want to get to this party, and, I, and I'm like, I'm, I'm scared to death. I'm walking down this road. Every, every sound of anything in the woods is a big animal coming to get me, you know. The, the clouds uh, had overcast the sky, so no moonlight or stars that night. Couldn't see my hand in front of my face. I remember thinking, this is nuts. I couldn't run or I'd hurt myself. So I'm just walking, and, and all I can do is kind of just keep telling myself, you know, I was, I was saying, you know, he had to walk this path. He made it, apparently. Of course, he probably had a flashlight. But, uh, you know, I just kept telling myself that, you know, and, and I want to get there. And, and uh, he, you know, I just remember him saying to me, it'll be a little dark, but you'll make it. My heart's beating and pounding, you know. And sure enough, I get... I get, and I can see through the woods. I can see in the kitty corner angle. I see the cabin glowing with the lights through the windows, through the woods. And I'm like, ha, ah, and I see it. And then the driveway, and I just sprint down there, walk in all nonchalant, like, hey, what's to eat? <laughs> it was a little, little bit of a harrowing passage. And I, and I think so much about that memory as we come to this chapter 18, which is in the book of Daniel in our Bibles, because these guys are in exile too. They're walking a dark road. And when you're walking a dark road in exile, sometimes the only thing you can do is rehearse certain truths that you know are true. You cling to certain promises until you see the light, until you get through. And that's what Daniel and some of his friends did, and that's what we can do. Let's talk about what those things are from the, from the text here, okay? That's what we're going to do. What, what are the truths we need to rehearse? What are the things we need, the promises we need to cling to in exile? Now, when we meet Daniel, he is, um, he's about eight, uh, 16 probably years old. It's about 605 B.C. He's just finishing up probably his, like his sophomore year at Jerusalem Community High School, you know, home of the mighty goats. Go goats. Uh, and... and uh, He's this, described as this young, handsome, physical specimen of a guy, smart, teachable, loves God. He's very faithful and loyal. He's like, he would be on The Bachelor in his day. Every woman wants a rose from Daniel. And people in his yearbook would write, most likely to succeed, you're going to be awesome. He's going to get a scholarship, go off to college, come home, marry some beautiful girl, have two and a half kids, and live in an HDTV house. That's Daniel. But a funny thing happens on the way to the future for Daniel. None of it plays out how he expects. Because he's at home one day when he hears the boots on the ground and in come the Babylonians and he watches as places familiar and loved by him crumble to the ground and go up in smoke as along with, with his family and everything about his future, everything, it's gone. The king behind the whole uh, plan of deportation and captivity and exile is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody say Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king with his huge ego and a great plan to overcome the whole world and he drags Daniel and a bunch of them back to this Babylon, which is what is about 500 miles away from them, what is modern-day Iraq. And literally, Daniel then finds himself between Iraq and a hard place, as we like to say around here. Because Iraq, uh, Babylon, by contrast to sleepy little kind of farming community, sort of grazing pasture land Israel, Babylon is this fast-paced, hip, you know, hip hipster union, and it's a place where, where there's lots of hubbub of culture and wealth and wickedness, the sort of 
New York City or Las Vegas-like place, a very, very different, and Daniel and his friends and his family, some of the ones who were lucky enough to be deported, they know that we're not in Kansas anymore. He's in exile. So he gets drafted to be part of this special sort of group of cadets for a school kind of thing. Daniel chapter 1, page 249 in the story, verse 3, then the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar, orders one of his guys to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's service. So they're looking for the Russell Wilsons, the um, Leonardo DiCaprios, and the Steve Jobs, and the uh, you know, Albert Einsteins, and they're going to convert them all into the Colin Powells of the day, you know, these military and, and, and sort of government leaders. And he was able to teach them uh, language and literature of the Babylonians. They're going to enculturate them, strip away, brainwash them, get them away from their other gods and cultures so they can become Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they would enter the king's service. Three years was long enough, they thought, to kind of get them you know, into the system. Verse 6 and 7. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. That's the southern kingdom. One guy's name was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official says, well, we're going to change your names. We're going to give you Babylonian names. And so they pick some of the Babylonian gods, and they use their names to give these guys new Babylonian names. To the name Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. Thankfully, we still call him Daniel. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. New Babylonian names. And so thus begins the tension. How are we going to serve God in this, in this faraway place? How are we going to do this? We're the only ones. Now what's interesting is uh, these guys start getting promoted and do fairly well through the program. And uh, chapter 2 of the book of Daniel tells one time when the king had this dream, he couldn't interpret it, nobody could interpret it, and Daniel is gifted by God to be able to reveal the mystery to King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, thank you, I love you guys, I love you and your God. And they're all excited because they think he's going to follow the one true God, but he doesn't. But he does promote Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to these high positions in the Babylonian government. Well, that doesn't bode well with a lot of the other leaders who are local natives and they're not, who are these outsider upstarts. And so they start looking for a way to get some dirt on these guys so they can knock them off. And, and the Bible talks about how they could find no fault in their character. They could find no dirt on these guys. The only weakness they could find was that they were exceedingly loyal to their God. Wouldn't that be something if they could say that about me or you? Couldn't find any fault. Couldn't find anything in your past. Couldn't find any character flaws at all. Except maybe that one thing, that you're just so exceedingly loyal to God. This is, this is where they were. And this allows these guys, who are kind of mad at Daniel and his buddies, to come up with a plan. They go to Nebuchadnezzar and they pitch it and... And uh, they, they say, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you've got this situation where you've got all these diverse people coming together. You've got to hold this together. You've got to create some unity. You've got to create a common force. And what better to do that than a religion? And what better to do that than a religion that centers around you, almighty king? And they, they appeal to his big fat ego, and he likes the idea. And here's what happens if you go over to Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. It's big. And he sets it up on the plain of Dura, a big open place in the province of Babylon. He then summoned all the important people, 
the state traps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. We're going to have a big ceremony, a big party, right? And so, all the same list, <laughs> and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood there before it. So you picture this thing, 90 feet high, just like an eight-story building. A lot of expense has gone into this. That's, that's gold. This is important to him. This is going to be an impressive big rallying point, going to have a big nationalistic moment, a big sort of religious fervor moment where everyone kind of bows down together. We feel united as Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar right in the center of it all. Did anybody go to the opening or watch the opening ceremonies of the Olympics on Friday night? A huge spectacle, the whole world watching, everyone just kind of feeling the spirit of the thing. And all of it, you kind of get the feeling, has a little bit to do with Putin thinks it's all about him. Okay? That's a little bit what's going on here. Verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do. O peoples and nations of every language, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, harp, pipes, in other words, they had a big orchestra, as soon as you hear the music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. A lot of people think that the image of gold probably represented Nebuchadnezzar himself. So that's, that's the word. When the music goes up, you go down. Everybody worship. Got that? Can we all agree to do that? Everybody, can you do that, please? Would you do that, please? And, they're like, and then it's like as if it's one of those sort of little things that is tacked on to the end of a commercial where they give the warnings, where the fast-talking guy talks. That's kind of, it kind of struck me this way. It's like, so everyone bow down, okay? And by the way, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that. Okay, now I'm listening. There's a side effect I'm not interested in. So this big moment comes and all these countless peoples from every tongue and tribe and nation are around there that have been brought into the Babylonian Empire and they whoop up this emotion and this fever pitch and the music and blah, 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 and the music starts and it works like a charm. Everybody drops like some Marine sergeant has said, give me 10, boom, they're down. They're down there with their noses groveling on the ground. Verse 7, therefore as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither and all that stuff, all the people of the nations in every language fell down and they worshipped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Well, so they're all down there groveling. Oh, yeah, this is a great God. Yeah, we're, this is awesome. And then there's a little murmur that starts moving throughout the, throughout the crowd. And it gets a little louder and louder. And pretty soon, people, because what's happening is people are looking and they're pointing. They're pointing and they're murmuring and saying something to people next to them as they're down there on their knees and their noses. They're pointing. There's three dudes that aren't bowing. And it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And everybody else is looking there and caulking about it. And say, Those guys are dead meat. Because it was either the most courageous act of faith or the most suicidal act of folly. Because everybody knew the kind of insane mindset of King Nebuchadnezzar and what he had said. But there they were, refusing to bend the knee and bow their head to another god. And so right away, the enemies spring into action. Oh, King, King Nebuchadnezzar, you see those guys? See those guys? See those three Jews? They're, they're not bowing. Oh, they're making, really making you look bad, King. Oh, this isn't good. We're concerned for you, King. Because here's their chance to take these guys out. And Nebi is furious. He, it's a funny scene to me. He, he has these guys dragged up, these three Jews dragged up before him. He's invested in these guys. He's given them all this stuff, that, and he's elevated them. And here they are. And it, you can just see the veins on his neck popping out like garden hoses. He's like, <laughs> he says that, he's like, is it possible that you didn't understand 
what I said? You know, he's just like trying to contain himself. That when the music goes up, you go down. You didn't know, he says in verse 15. Um, let's go over this again. I'm a reasonable guy. If you're now ready and understand to fall and worship the image I made, well, then very good. We have an understanding. Hmm? And then he adds, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then I love this. He adds at the end, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. <laughs> there are certain questions that aren't really meant to fish for a, a verbal answer, right? See, like right now, you don't know whether that's one of them. There's a, there's a thing called a rhetorical question. Uh, a rhetorical question, you, you lob out there to make a point. You're not looking for information. When a parent says, do you want a spanking? The parent's not trying to start a conversation making a statement. King Nebuchadnezzar says, then what God will be able to save you from my hand? <laughs> he thinks he's made a point. He's going to turn and walk away. But these guys are like, they have an answer. It's kind of funny in a way. They speak up. Shadrach, Meshach, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, they reply, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, well, since you ask, we really don't need to defend ourselves you in this matter because if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, as you say, what king will be able to rescue us from your hand? Well, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he could also rescue us from your hand, O king, with all due respect. Friends, that's the truth you cling to when you're in exile. That's the truth you keep rehearsing. It's a promise you grab onto and never let go of. Our God is able. Our God is able. Will you say those words with me? Just those three words. God is able. We can never say that too much. We can never rehearse that truth too often because God can do amazing things. The Bible says above and beyond anything we might ask or imagine. Big things, macro things, huge things in this church, in our lives, but little things, little detail things. Our God is able. We could tell a lot of stories. I want to tell you one such story that is just, just I think it's a great story, so I want to tell you. Joel Morgan is a pastor who was going to visit some missionaries in uh, Eastern Europe. And he asked some friends who had been there, hey, when I'm packing, I, I've never been there, I don't know these people I'm going to see, what, what kind of things should I bring? And they said, well, bring this and that and the other. But a lot of them said, hey, whatever you do, be sure to bring some extra food. Because a lot of places you'll be going in these remote villages, sometimes they don't have running water, electricity, and you may, not, you may miss some meals and so forth. So you're going to need to fortify yourself and tide yourself over. So bring some things that you can that will also get by the security, you know, at customs, but that, that won't be confiscated there. And bring more than you think you'll need because, you know, they'll, they'll take some at customs, but some things that will help you get by with some food. So he goes off to the grocery store, and he's wandering down the aisles, and he asks himself, you know, what, what can I bring that won't catch the eye of a customs agent, that won't spoil, I can carry in my bag, that will serve as an energy boost if I need it. And he just says, you know, he just says a simple prayer. Lord, this whole trip is yours. Um... You know, you know the kind of things I'm going to need when I'm there. So as I walk down these aisles, I'm just going to trust you to prompt me to select the right items. And as he's walking down the aisle, you know, his eyes fail pretty instantly on a Reese's peanut butter cup display. And he grabs a big old pack. He goes, bam, I love it, and puts it in his, puts it in his pack. And uh, after that, down another aisle, he sees uh, um, some tapioca pudding snacks. He says, I like tapioca pudding snacks. And it's light out of the work, puts it in there, and... He grabs some uh, cans of fruit cocktail and some 
mandarin oranges and gum and hard candy, things like that. Put them all in there. That'll keep me, you know, tide me over if I get hungry. And uh, on the fourth day of his trip, he and his group are in Romania there, and they go to a little place called Timisoara, Romania. And he's going to spend several days there with this couple and their family who'd been there for 14 months. They'd been sent there by a mission agency and really essentially had been forgotten. Um, they had gone for days, many times they would go for days without heat and electricity. And, and so Joel and his team were the first English-speaking Americans to show up since they'd been there. And they just were so happy to see him. And so excited and starved for anything American, you know. They had two daughters, one teenager, one a little bit younger. And uh, they just had this incredible night, great visit, shared a meal together, prayed, and they were getting ready to leave. And, and then suddenly Joel remembered, you know, the stuff in his backpack, and he thought, well, you know, that stuff I bought a week before, we're not staying much longer. He gets this idea that even though it's October, they'll just have Christmas right then and there. And he'll, he just, he, he kind of tells them, why don't, why don't we celebrate? He's going to bless this family with the stuff he brought. So he sits down, he starts playing the Santa Claus role to the hilt, you know, and he's like, he's going to just bless these people and, and so forth. And he starts asking the girls, yeah, well, if you could have any one thing from the U.S., what would it be? And right away, the girls say, oh, candy, candy. And uh, he's excited because he's got a little bit of candy in his, in his bag. And, and that's when his mom chimed in. Yeah, the girls love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, but we just can't get them here. So with a lump in his throat, he reaches in his bag. He's holding this holy piece of candy now. And he shows it to them, and they're laughing and holding their treasures, and they're jumping up and down and wiping a tear from their eyes and just... They're just amazed at it. It got by customs, too. And then, and then wiping a tear from his eye, Joel asked the mother, and what, what, what item would brighten your day? And uh, he figured she's going to say a side of beef, you know, or Mountain Dew or something like that. But she just says, without hesitation, I just miss fruit so much, especially citrus. Without even looking in his bag, he just reached in and pulled out a can of fruit cocktail, another can of mandarin oranges, and handed them to her. And they just started laughing and crying and celebrating and just amazed. The whole team you know, that came with Joel was just amazed at this. Joel figures at that point, what he better do is just kind of not push his luck. He's got two miracles already. That's a good day, you know, and he's going to just pour out everything on the floor and let the dad pick something that he wants. But something in his soul shouted, go for it. And before he could argue with God, he finds himself saying, Gary, what's your favorite dessert? And that wonderful servant of God says, well... <laughs> It's something no one else in the world really likes. And the family all rolled their eyes and says, yeah, tapioca pudding. <laughs> and he nearly broke his wrist as he reached in that backpack, pulled out that four-pack of tapioca pudding, and everyone is up on their feet, and they're celebrating what God had prompted him to buy seven days ago, 4,000 miles away. And, and Joel says what followed was the most beautiful expression of worship you've ever seen. Nine people in a little humble living room in Romania just saying, God is able what an amazing God. You know, he didn't have to do that. He doesn't always give you tapioca pudding when you need it. But sometimes he does to remind us that God is able. And he does these amazing big things and little things. It's an appreciation we've got to have for Philippians 4.19, which says, Our God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. Our God is able. We could spend the next hour and a half, couldn't we, in this room right here, saying, does anybody have a story about how you just know that you know that you know God is able. And I could hand that mic and it wouldn't come back for two hours because someone, Randy would grab it and say, I was addicted to porn and my life was going in the toilet. But by God's grace, I am free today and pure and clean. And all I can say, and my wife will tell you, 
God is able. And George would steal that thing and say, well, let me tell you, I was strung out. I was, I was addicted to pills, and, and it was a big, awful thing. And, 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 but I'm free today because God is able. And someone else would grab it and tell about their marriage that was in the tank, but it got reconciled, and they'd say, God is able. And someone else would say, yeah, my husband, he was really, really sick on the edge of death, but three surgeries and a bunch of rehab. He, he's been healthy for 20 years. We don't have any explanation except God is able. And we could go on and on and on of how God has shown up. Big ways, little ways, little coincidences that we know God is able. And we could tell those stories and we need to cling to that truth. Friends, when you're walking through a dark road and it's scary and you can't see the light yet and all you know is that your world is upside down and you're in exile, that's when you rehearse the truth. That's when you cling to the promise and you say those words, our God is able. And that's what gets you through exile. Now there's more. There's more words from the scriptures that we can rehearse as well that these guys did. Because remember now, remember, these guys are exiled into a foreign country and they're just trying to, to make it. And when the edict goes out, everyone's going to have to bow down. I picture these guys getting together and having a small group meeting. This was the, one of the first small groups. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's probably the leader. They've given their lives over to God. They're trying their best to live among you know, a, a strange place, and they're rehearsing these truths, and they're like, we, we aren't going to bend the knee. We can't do this. We can't do this to our God. We're not going to deny God. Are we agreed on this? And they put their hands in, and they have a great small group meeting. Friends, that's why we talk about small groups around here, because we all need what they had. We all live as exiles. We need to encourage each other. You're not crazy. Hang in there. You can make it. So today is what we call Connecting Weekend, and we put balloons up out here in the commons at every one of our campuses because we want to be able to go find it and say, I need what they had. I want to get together with some people through the week and help me get by, help connect, help remind ourselves we're not crazy and remind ourselves what the truth is that I need to cling to. That's what small groups is. I hope if you're not in one and you're not experiencing that, you're not talking about the story with someone, I hope you'll do that today in one of our connecting weekend um, places. But these guys, they say we're not going to bow. Now think about this. I got to thinking, they probably had really, really hoped this wouldn't come to this. They'd scooted by without having a problem. They had their own God, and it just wasn't creating too many ripples. But then the edict comes out. I bet when Daniel, in chapter 2, interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, I love you guys and your God. Awesome. I bet they prayed, God, convert him. Make him, make him believe in you, the one true God. But that prayer did not get answered. And when King Nebuchadnezzar made that big decree that everyone would have to bow down to a God of gold, I bet they prayed he would change his mind. But he didn't. And I bet they prayed, oh, I pray he never actually enforces it. But he did. And I bet they prayed, if it comes to that, and everyone bows and we don't, I hope no one notices it. And if they do, that they won't tell on us. But they noticed and they told. None of these guys' prayers were answered the way they wanted them to go. Sometimes that's how exiles feel. They had every reason to be upset and angry and bitter. But look what else they say. Look what else they cling to. Bow, when the music starts up, you go down. They don't. The king says, what gives? And here's what they say. Verse 17, again, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, 
the God we serve is able. And he will save us and rescue us from your hand too. Now look at verse 18 because as John Orberg says, it's one of the most incredible statements of faith ever uttered by anyone. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Here's where we stand. We can do no other. Our God is able. Our God, who, who drowned the Pharaoh's armies when we were running out of Egypt, our God who made the walls of Jericho crumble, our God who made the great big giant drop like a leaf, our God is able to rescue us and preserve us from any furnace or from your hand. Our God is able, but even if he does not, O king, he isn't going to change a thing because our mind is made up and we know who our God is and we're going to march through our deaths singing songs of praise to the only God we'll ever serve if that's what it comes to. Even if he does not. And these are the words that everyone has to cling to when you're in exile. Words you're going to have to cling to if you're going to have a genuine faith that will rock solid you all the way to the light. Even if he does not. Friends, listen, our God is able. We have the same God. Our God is the same God who drowned the Pharaoh and his armies. Our God is the same God who is able to drop the walls of Jericho into a rubble heap and to drop the Goliath giant like a leaf and who raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. Our God is able to answer our deepest prayers and to fulfill some of our wildest dreams beyond what we would ask or imagine. But I need to ask you something right now. What if he does not? Then what happens to your faith? When God doesn't do what it seems to us like he really ought to do. He's still God. Do you still trust him? We talk a lot about more and better disciples around here, getting better as a disciple, growing deeper and getting more mature, but sometimes it feels like we're kind of contingent. Like our, our willingness to stay with God and go with God is kind of contingent on Him doing some stuff for us first. Like He sent us Jesus, but that's not enough for us. We want Him, expect Him to do certain things more. Well, what about when He does not? Then, where's your faith? I think of a friend whose wife battled cancer here in this church. It came on violently, suddenly, wickedly. And his love for her was deep and strong. And his faith in God was deep and strong. His family was deep and strong. His prayers were deep and strong. And he hoped and researched and studied and prayed and sat with her and counseled and struggled with her. He fought as hard as she did. He clung tenaciously to the truth. Our God is able. But I remember the day when we sat together with her becoming weaker and weaker and him grappling and he finally came to this when he said essentially our God is able to deliver her and I know it. But even if he does not, I will worship him still. And there was silence. She just put her head back and smiled and nodded like that. And this is a guy who would give up anything in the world for this woman he loved, his business. He would have given up his money, his home, his health, his very life to have this one prayer answered. 
But for reasons that none of us will understand on this side of heaven, it didn't happen. And as that man walked down that dark road of exile, what he came to finally was this, if I have to give her up, I will not let go of God. I want this more than anything I've ever wanted in my life. But if the answer is no, even if he does not, I will not let go of God. Can you say that? Will you say that when it's your turn? Will you have a full devotion to God even if he does not write your lower story the way that you want it to be written? Maybe you're in a relationship with someone you're really attracted, it's going awesome, you love them and it's really great, but you know in your heart of hearts that it's not helping you uphold the values that are deepest to you and it's maybe leading you to cross a line that you don't want to cross but you're afraid that if you cut the relationship off, you'd be left all alone, and that pain is so great, you're frozen. Listen, friend, our God is able. Our God is able to bring someone else into you, into your relationship, that's so much better than anything you can ask or imagine. Our God is able, but here's what I'm asking you today. Even if he does not, and you have to face some loneliness, even then, Will you say, even if he does not, I will not dishonor God by this relationship? I will not bend the knee to something that dishonors and displeases my father? Maybe you're in a marriage that's a disappointment to you. And you've been saying to God, I know you're able to fix it. I hear about other couples. You know, can you change it and fix it? I'm asking you, you know what? He is able to do that. But I'm saying to you, even if he does not, even if your marriage is never what you think it's supposed to be, can you say, yet I will serve you and I will not bow down to the idols that tempt me in this exile? This is the stuff of real faith. Finances is close to home because we talk a lot about how our God is able in the arena of finances and we have so many stories in this room about you cannot give God and when I give and I'm generous, he just gives back. But sometimes when it gets hard, when the income stream dries up and and then we kind of maybe want to wait till things get better before we are generous again. And my question for you is, even if he does not, what do your finances say about your devotion to God? And your willingness to worship a God of gold. Make my family this way. Make my small group this way. And you know what? Even if, even if God does not, can you still serve them and serve God in that? I'm asking you to say, even if it does not, you will worship God. Say, I know you're able. I don't know, I don't know what it is for you. But I know that Jesus, one day, was in the garden, praying to the Father, with the cross before him, and he had a decision to make about whether it was any turning back or not. He said, Father, take this cup away. You know, can, can we not do this? Please, Father, you are able, Father, to do this another way. You are able. But even if you do not, not my will but yours be done. And he drank that cup. These are the words you cling to in exile. That the God we serve is able. But even if he does not, is there anywhere in your life 
where you've been holding back from full abandoned devotion and trust in God. And even if he does not, the kind of loyalty that will stand up in exile down any dark road you find yourself. Is there any place where fear or disappointment or hurt or sin has been keeping you from following him with utter trust? Even if he does not, Let me give you one more phrase because it's essential to making it through exile. God is able, even if he does not, here it is. God is with us. God is with us, people. God is with us. It's the greatest promise for a young boy on a dark road. God, you're right here, right? <laughs> and it's the greatest promise for any of us in exile. You may be in exile, but you are never alone. Tweet that. You may be in exile, but you're never alone. It was true for Daniel. It was true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, Daniel chapter 3, they get thrown into the furnace. Guess what? They do get thrown in. But guess what? In this case, God is able, and they don't burn up. They don't even come out smelling like they've been at a campfire. And when Nebuchadnezzar looks in, he says, wait a second. I'm looking in that furnace there. Didn't we throw three dudes in there? I see a fourth man walking around in the furnace. Gee, I wonder who that could have been. When you go into the furnace, friends, you're not alone. Daniel, he lives through all this stuff. And when he's 80 years old, chapter 6, another king, Darius, comes along. And through another trick and a ruse, because of his loyalty, he's thrown into a lion's den, 80 years old. He's like, I don't got time for this stuff anymore. Thrown in there to the lion's den. Guess what? Darius comes knocking on the door the next morning. Everything all right in there? He's like, yep, everything's just fine because God was in here with me too. Friends, when you're in a lion's den, you're not alone there either. Because God is with us. However bad the exile gets, you're never alone. We want to focus on the problems of our present but we need to focus on the presence of God in our problems. God sent his son into the world to enter this exiled planet. Emmanuel is God with us. And that's why Jesus said, I will be with you always. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. So that means whatever exile you're going through, whatever difficulty, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Cling to that promise, friends. Rehearse that truth. Hang on to Jesus because it's all we got. And it turns out it's all we need. We're going to share in a time of communion right now. What a beautiful way for us to share in communion. It's for anyone, anyone who longs for Jesus and loves Jesus. If you've never declared that before today, it's still okay. Take communion with us today. Servers, go take your places and get ready to serve the elements to us. And when the, when the bread and juice come down the aisle today, down your row, I'm going to invite you to take a piece of bread representing Jesus' body and a cup representing his blood and, and hold on to it today. Don't take it right away. We're going we're gonna to save it and, and partake together. There'll be reminders for us of Jesus, the death and the cross hanging that he did where he went to a place of utter loneliness, even separated from his father, so that we would never have to be alone. So he would always be with us. Do you realize that? Jesus went to a place where he was so alone. So you never would be. And so in communion, we'll celebrate that together in just a moment. So hold on to the elements and we'll partake together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus and we ask you to be with us in these moments. Come to us, each one of us, in our exile. In whatever way our world is not perfect, meet us in these elements, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.